the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. My name is Ian Tullock, and I'm here with my buddy, Anthony Petrielli. How you doing, Anthony? Good, man. How about you? Not too bad. It feels good to be recording a podcast talking about the Leafs. I miss doing this. This is a good time. I've been reading your Maple Leafs notebook column for the last few years. How long have you been doing that for? I think we're going on 10 years this season, so it, I'd like to think I've been around for a little bit, seen a few things. I want to say I've been reading it for at least a half decade now, and I've been doing the Leafs report cards for the last couple of years. Uh, we put both of them out at Maple Leafs Hot Stove this year, so we figured, hey, probably a good idea to start up a Leafs podcast, get our weekly thoughts out here. We're 10 games into the season now. It's the strangest COVID season. There's a lot to take into account here, but what are your opening thoughts when it comes to the first 10 games of the season? Uh, it's interesting on a few levels with them. Uh, and also, I feel like I should just say I'm looking forward to the podcast and, and interacting with, uh, with everybody. And uh, that includes, you know, obviously listeners and things we see in the comments and questions we might get. So I'm, I'm pumped for this season and, and all that's going to happen there. As for the first 10 games, like, I mean, they're 7-2-1, and one, so it, it's a little nitpicky. But at the same time, you know, six games have been against Ottawa and Edmonton. So in a, in a normal season, we'd sit there and be like, we're going to take everything here with a grain of salt. But their division's really bad. That's my main takeaway so far. And we're going to get into a few Leaf things, but I'll toss it back to you for your thoughts. Yeah, so... The quality of competition factor is a big one because they're not really going to face any good teams this year other than Montreal, who I think we would both agree is probably the strongest 200-foot team in the division. You take into account the fact that Nick Suzuki looks like he can run a power play for that team. They haven't had a power play in the last half decade. Now they might actually have something with him running the show there. So the infusion of some star talent, not to mention some depth with Tyler Toffoli and company. The defense core is strong in Montreal, too. They're not even playing Victor Mete right now, and they look great at 5-on-5. Five five. So... I think Montreal is definitely your biggest fear in the division if you're looking at measuring stick teams. They're facing, uh, I think, a back-to-back next week. There are two games against Montreal, so that'll be an interesting takeaway when we're trying to evaluate the Leafs' performance. But yeah, we're 10 games into the season here. They haven't faced the toughest schedule, although they have faced Connor McDavid a few times. I know when we're trying to evaluate the defensemen, that's something we tend to look at. Okay, how do you match up against the best competition in the world when Connor McDavid is facing you? One game, it went pretty well. The other game, it did not go very well, especially for Jake Muzzin. So I know you don't want to take too much out of a one-game sample. What we like to do, or at least what I like to do, is look at a larger sample, try to look at some of the larger trends. And yes, we're microanalyzing these games every single night. I'm doing it too. I'm trying to take comprehensive notes and come away with some kind of takeaways in a post-game column. But we're 10 games into the season, and I don't love this team at 5-on-5. Five five. The power play is obviously awesome. It's first in the league in power play percentage. You could look at other metrics, shots, chances, goals. They lead the league in every metric. They have two units that are doing really well there. We could break down the power play in a bit more detail later on, but I want to talk about this team at even strength because I think that's where the biggest frustration is. The shot attempts are down. The shot attempts for are down. The shot attempts against are down. They're playing a lower event game this season. They seem to be prioritizing puck possession, which is good, but it also seems to be hurting them in that they're not creating those offensive rush chances that we've seen in years past. So... What are your thoughts when it comes to the offense and fixing it? Because I think that's going to be a big part of how this team goes from being good to great is they have to clean up some of their five-on-five issues. And strangely, it's offensive this year. The defensive issues aren't as big. Yeah, I think I think part of it, and I, I was banging on this drum like all offseason, um, they lack depth. 
they just they lack depth their depth players are not strong and I know people did not like Kasperi Kapanen I know people did not like Andreas Janssen and when like these kinds of guys were traded you know people just kind of shrugged and or they liked the return or they liked the cap space or whatever but they were like legitimately good depth players like the, like both of those guys are um like Kapanen had 20 goals once uh Jan- Janssen had a really nice season a few years ago I think he had like 23 goals or something like like they're legitimately productive and like those guys are notably better than players like Jimmy VC um I Barabanov, we could have an entire show on this guy. Um, like, I could talk more about him than his ice time. I mean, how many times has he really touched the puck at this point? How many times has he made a play where you're like, this guy's good and he should play in the NHL? I don't want to spend too much time on Barabanov, but what's crazy is that when you look at the Leafs' 5-on-5 five five numbers when he's on the ice versus when he's off the ice, the fourth line's getting completely cratered whenever Barabanov plays. Yeah. Early in the season, there was a Spezza-Simmons-Barabanov line, and it just didn't work. And now Simmons is playing in the top nine. There's talk of him potentially moving into the top six and maybe playing with a Matthews Marner or a Nylander Tavares. Or, yeah, Nylander Tavares. I don't know how much I'd love that, but I can understand why they're doing it considering how well Wayne Simmons has played on the power play. I guess to me that's a positive early on. I know that a lot of Leafs shows right now, you're hearing a lot of negativity for a team that's 7-2-1 and one because that shouldn't really be their record when you look at all the underlying numbers, when you consider the fact that a lot of those are one-goal victories, and we know based on a large sample of evidence in in NHL history that you tend not to repeat one-goal victories. If you're hanging your hat on a lot of one-goal wins, it's similar to winning one-possession games in football. That doesn't repeat from one season to the next. You shouldn't be relying too much on those one-goal victories. But if you were to take some positives out of the early season so far, I know that we tend to be focusing a bit on the negative right now in Toronto. But what's a big positive for you over the last, let's say, week or two? I mean, the the obvious, like the obvious stuff out the window, which is like their good players generally look good. Um, and I know this is saying the same thing, but it's worth mentioning because it's really the the main other concern that I have with this team is Frederick Anderson's looked really good the last few games. Like he stole them a point in Edmonton. Even there was a game, the last game that they were in Edmonton that they won, like the Leafs were dreadful again to start the game. And Anderson made a, like a bunch of saves to like keep them in and like hold fort until the team finally got it going. But he looks really good and they're not going anywhere without goaltending in the playoffs, especially if they're going to be this like average to mediocre at five on five. Like they need him to be legitimately good. And my concern is we talk about this division I'm going to assume that Winnipeg finishes third. Okay. Bold prediction. I like it. I think Winnipeg is a good team. Like, I actually do. And I think that they're a problem in the playoffs to match up against because they could basically have Shifley or Dubois on the ice pretty much the entire time. And if not, you can throw Paul Statsny on a third line or you could top load him into the top six. And they have Lowry, who I also really like. Like, I think he's, for what he is, I think he's a really nice player. Whenever Adam Lowry and Matthew Perot are on the ice at the same time, the Jets are dominating the puck. So that's that's a good bottom six combination to have. And Lowry's massive. I don't understand. I feel like he's almost like a cartoon. When he gets on the ice, I'm like, how is he so... He looks so much bigger than everybody else. Like, I know he's not, but he looks... I don't know why. He just looks huge. So anyways, back on this Winnipeg point. Like, I think Winnipeg is a bit of a problem. And I think if you get them in a playoff series, like, Hellebuck is really good. And if you're like you know what, Winnipeg is deep and they might possibly have the better goalie in the series. Like whoever finishes in first 
is going to dodge the Winnipeg bullet. Like you don't want to go through a series with Winnipeg. You want to play Calgary or Vancouver or Edmonton. No questions asked. So I think finishing first is actually like pretty important in this division because uh, I would want to avoid that team. So Frederick Anderson, all that to say is we haven't had a playoff series yet where he's the best goalie. So I really want to avoid Hellebuck. I, I'll take, and I Markstrom is really good too, but I'll take Markstrom. Like we're not even going to talk about Edmonton's goalies because uh, that would just... Mikko Koskinen's much better than Mike Smith. I think they realize that. They haven't played Mike Smith one game yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, Smith was hurt, right? Like he was, I think he, was he? I think he was. I think he was banged up, but early on they weren't playing him at all. Yeah, he's not good. He's ancient a little bit at this point. Um, and then you have Vancouver, who Braden Holpe, whatever, plus like just their in general defense and um, the way they've been rolled over by the Habs. It, it's hard to think much of them at this point. So um, I, Frederick Anderson's to me the most encouraging, plus just their general defense. How about you? What do you think? Yeah, let's let's talk about the Leafs defense because I think that was a big concern that we've had over the last few years and the Leafs tried to address it by bringing in TJ Brody they like you said traded away Kasperi Kapanen and Andreas Janssen two guys were making a lot of money that third line was making 10 million dollars and it didn't produce in the playoffs ergo you think okay let's replace these guys with some cheaper depth we're a team that's built on our star talent up front we know that star players are what really drive results so let's play these star players with some you know complimentary cheaper depth and it'll help us acquire that blue chip top four defenseman into tj brody they brought tj brody in so far and the riley brody pairing the results are below 50 percent at in shots scoring chances all, all the important metrics they're getting outplayed at even strength and you can talk about the difficulty of their minutes but also look at who they play with they're not the top shutdown pairing though like their minutes aren't easy but they're not the they're not going against the best players they are some nights, and then other nights it's Muzzin Hall. It's sometimes it's a bit flip floppy, but I think to me the bigger concern is that they're getting outplayed, and I don't think it's TJ Brody's fault. Other than that one game, <laughs> where it definitely was his fault. There was one where it was very clearly TJ Brody's fault. Yeah. That was I remember having to do that report card. I'm like, okay, it doesn't get much worse than this. That, that like, was the Ottawa game, right? That was game two fault. of the season. Yeah. I was yeah, like, it's, that was a yeah that, nightmare game. That was the flashback to Jake Gardner game. That. That was Jake Gardner's back game. I think when we're evaluating defense at the NHL level, you have to realize that there are going to be games like that yeah. throughout the course of a season. You're just going to have a nightmare game where nothing goes right and the puck ends up in the back of the net a lot. Brody's a, Hey, look, Brody's a good player. If he has that game one every 10, I won't say a word. Like, that's what you get for $5 million. If you want better than that, you have to pay more for five, than five. But... If he's going to play one out of 10, and that's what he did in the first 10, right? Because he's generally been solid otherwise. Ultimately, I'm not really going to complain. I don't think he can run a power play, but I'm not going to complain. Yeah, I mean, we don't need to get into the PP2 concerns of TJ Brody walking the line compared to Amico Lettinen, or I even preferred Rasmus Sandin last season. He looked like he knew what he was doing out there. We'll have to bring him up later in the show. But when we're talking about TJ Brody at 5-on-5, five five, what I've really liked from him is his gap in the neutral zone. I feel like he does a much better job than some of Toronto's other defensemen, i.e. Morgan Riley, at taking away that space from opposing forwards. You look at the ability to defend the rush in the modern NHL, that's how you prevent goals because teams are scoring mostly off the rush. I want to say three-quarters of goals come off the rush within five to ten seconds of gaining the blue line. 
once you're facing a set defense, I know Sheldon Keefe has talked about this a lot, when the other team gets set defensively and you're going up against a four- or five-man unit in their own end, it's very difficult to break that down. And I think we've seen the Leafs a few times this season stuck with the puck on the perimeter where they're trying to break down the defense. But it's hard when you have a team that can just set themselves up with four or five guys, pack the slot, park the bus, the Barry Trot system that we see in Long Island. It's hard to break that down. So you want to be able to create offense off the rush offensively. The best way to defend that is by maintaining a tight gap in transition, not letting them gain the zone, not letting them make a pass after gaining the zone. And if you look at Morgan Riley, I've tried to break it down with a few video clips. There's so much space that he's giving opposing forwards when they're breaking down a two-on-two rush, a three-on-three rush, just basic hockey plays, and they're gaining the zone cleanly and creating a cycle, and now you're stuck in your own end. A lot of bad things are happening. We know he's a special offensive player, but over the last few years, the excuse for his poor results have been, well, he has bad partners, you know, quality of line mates. Who's he had over the last few years? I mean, Tyson Berry last year, the year before that, Ron Hainsey for a couple seasons, Nikita Zaitsev. Cody Cece in the playoffs. That happened. Arguably worse. I don't know who's worse between Cece and Barry, but either way. That's always been my excuse for Riley because I go, you know what? Get this guy an actual legit top four partner and the results will come. TJ Brody, even though he's a difficult player to evaluate because he spent most of his career strapped to Mark Giordano and the few seasons he played away from him, there were mixed results. But I think when you're trying to break down play individually you're looking okay what is Brody doing to drive results what is Riley doing to drive results I like it when Riley jumps up into the play activates and makes him a nice play off the rush there are a lot of times where Riley gets stuck in the offensive zone ahead of the play and there's a forward covering for him and whether it's a Mitch Marner or an Austin Matthews I think what I'm starting to realize is that forwards are not as good at defending the rush as defensemen and that goes without saying it's not in their job description as often you're not as good at skating backwards and maintaining a tight gap but what I'm thinking about is if a defenseman's activating every single time the same way that Morgan Riley does or you think of a Roman Yossi in Nashville how much is that just by design going to result in you giving up a lot off the rush the other way because it's a forward covering for you so I have a little bit of a theory on Morgan Riley and I shouldn't just take credit for it myself because um Declan, one of the other Maple Leaf Hot Stove contributors, and myself, we're just talking about this, and we've been talking about this for years. So I believe Morgan Riley played a little bit of forward uh, as like a minor hockey player. I mean, I'm sure he did. And in junior, like he he basically lost his draft year, right? Like he barely played because of that injury. I want to say he played four or five games. Yeah. Right? Like he barely, he he didn't really get too much of an opportunity. Uh, to actually play the defense position. And if you watched him, especially coming out of junior, like when he went right to the Leafs, like he tried to go end to end like all the time because that was how he played in junior. And I'm sure he could do it in junior. I've seen a few of his highlights, as I'm sure everybody else has. And like, it's pretty insane, right? He'll get the puck, he'll wind up. And in junior, you can do that kind of stuff. And he's adjusted to that. Like he's He's become that one year where he had 20 goals and he led all D-men in, in scoring, which wasn't that long ago, by the way. He was really good at like joining the rush and being the trailer and using his wrist shot. But ultimately, when you see him, like he skates like a forward, like often, especially like as as a defender. Like he's skating on his toes most of the time. Like he's very rarely on his heels. And by that I mean, if you're watching most defensemen when they skate they're on their heels because you're told as a young age like to skate backwards like sit in the chair 
right? Everybody's heard it. Like you're going to put your butt out, you're going to bend your knees and you're going to get into your stance and you're going to square up your shoulders with your opponent. But if you watch Riley, he's often cheating or he's not squaring himself up defensively. Like he just doesn't play it most often as like a standard defenseman. And this is how he's skating backwards, defending a rush. Yeah. He's like, he's looking for opportunities to like, you know, poke the puck up and then transition the other way. Like his gap control is not always there. He's just, he's not playing it as you would a standard defenseman. Jake Cardner used to do the same thing. Right. And he did play forward a little bit as well. And he would also do like, if a guy was beating him wide, um, he would turn the other way. Like he wouldn't turn with them as the guy was taking him wide. He would oh, turn. There's the classic game seven, Jake DeBrusque. I just don't want to think about it. But he would do it. That wasn't the only time. Like he would do it regularly. But all that to say, like that's kind of my thing on Riley. I think off the rush, he like he struggles with when teams are attacking him to identify like what he should be doing, who his assignment is, where he should be going. Um, like there was one play and it was like, it was in the last game and it was called a good play on the broadcast, but McDavid was going down against Brody and Riley like literally skated across the ice. Like it was ba- He basically made it a one on two and McDavid saw it. So he tried passing it back door and Riley was able to recover it. But if he didn't recover it, it would have been one of those plays that just every analyst like shows and just says like he skated over and left this guy wide open. And he kind of got lucky picking it off a little bit to some degree, but that's, that's always kind of been my thing on him. But if you watch him, like he'll battle hard, um, you know, he'll win battles to like get the puck back in the, in the corners or whatever. You need to separate an opponent from the puck along the boards. He's actually one of Toronto's better defensemen in that regard. Yeah. He's, he's fine at that. It's just the issue for me is that he spends so much time in his defensive zone and I'd rather be in the other end where Jake Muzzin and Justin Hall tend to play. Yeah, I mean, Muzzin and Hull's a really good pairing. Like, it's hard to compare anybody to them on this team. Like, those guys just look really good. Travis Dermott and Zach Bogosian, the the soft minutes comparable, maybe? I like Bogosian. I, I know he seems to be a hot-button topic, but he's steady. Like, he hasn't had... Uh, the first game against the Habs, he had a few penalties, but he hasn't had one game where I'm like, this guy's been an outward, like, disaster. Yeah, and he's not making a ton of money. He is what he is. He's what, like your number six defenseman? He's on the number two penalty kill unit. He's that quote-unquote safe defenseman. And these guys tend to drive me crazy over the years. You know, the Roman Polaks, the Nikita Zaitsevs. But if you have one of them, and he's on the bottom pair, and he plays PK2, and he only plays late in games where you're holding a lead, and otherwise, if you're trailing, you're probably not going to play him too much in the third period. I think he can live with that kind of guy. I do wonder, does that does that player need to start every single game of the regular season so that you're not playing Erasmus Sandin or you're not playing a Travis Dermott and Miko Lettinen as much as you should be to try to see what you have there? I I think their thought is, this is my just opinion on their thought, which I kind of get, is at least we know what we're getting out of Bogosian, but all three of those other guys are wild cards, so we don't want to pair two wild cards together but we're happy to pair one quote unquote wild card with Bogosian who will be their safety net. And at least they know what they can get from him. I was going to argue that Dermot's been pretty consistent at even strength this year, but I know what you mean by wild card. You're talking about the risks that they're taking on the ice when they pinch and they activate into the play. Dermot, as much as I love his tight gap, every so often he'll get caught. You, 
you want to make sure that you have someone back there to make sure it's not a breakaway. So there's a lot of the times when we're talking about a a good defense pairing, you need that chemistry. You need a guy who you know is going to be the go guy, you know, Morgan Riley, and someone who's a bit more defensively responsible. Oddly enough, on the Jake Muzzin-Justin Hall pairing, Hall is usually the one that you recognize because he's the one who's jumping up into the play and activating at the right times. Uh, you'll, you'll see him activate off the rush to try to make it a four-on-two at certain times, give the Leafs numbers. Jake Muzzin, you might go a full game or two without really noticing him much because he tends to be the last guy back. But he's always standing in the right spots defensively on the PK. He has a good stick. I don't think we need to talk too much about Jake Muzzin because if you've watched him play at all, you know what you're getting. Probably Dubas's best trade. Yeah. Uh, what was the what was the package for that? Because it was a first, I want to say Grundstrom and Sean Dersey. Yeah. I mean, that's a steep price, but you got a top pair of defenseman for it. So I, I think you do that trade 10 times out of 10. 11. Yeah. You know what trade you don't do 10 times out of 10? Nazem Kadri for uh, Tyson Berry and Alex Kerfoot, maybe not. I don't know how this is still a debate amongst some people. I like, I don't like. I don't think it is. Colorado would never. If you called Colorado right now and said, "We will take back Kadri, we will swap you back Kerfoot," I don't even know if Sakic speaks words into the phone back to you. Well, Tyson Berry, a year of Tyson Berry was supposed to be the big takeaway from that trade, and it was a big dud. Uh, that was the one thing I will I will say like it was a bad trade and I didn't like it from the start because I maintained from the start that I think Kadri was the best player among those three uh, so just on that logic alone plus he was at a cap friendly hit and any number of other reasons things that he brings to the table but Barry was shockingly bad and like he's he looks even worse now on Edmonton but before then like he actually was pretty good like, it was shocking. He had a couple really good years in Colorado. And even when you're trying to evaluate his play, if you look at the on-ice metrics, there are some years that were excellent and some years that were awful. And consistently throughout his career, his coaches never trusted him against top competition. And sometimes I wonder how much of that is just a coaching bias. Nate Schmidt was that way in Washington. And then you threw him in Vegas, and he faced the toughest competition in the league and did really well in a pairing with Braden McNabb. Now he's playing in Vancouver, where things are obviously not the greatest in Vancouver right now, but I don't think that's a fair assessment of of Nate Schmidt overall. You look at what he did in Vegas, he went from a guy who was getting super soft minutes to the toughest minutes in the league, and he did well. So sometimes I wonder if we overstate that competition element. Ian, I'll take this to my grave. I'll take this to my grave. Carl Alsner getting hurt in that Leafs-Capitals playoff series swung the series like the Leafs had a chance to win it Carl Alsner got hurt and they had to play Schmidt and the second that happened I was like I don't think like this is that's such a massive swing in player it's not even funny it happened and I was like I think that's the nail in the coffin for them because honestly like we talked about it Frederick at the beginning like Anderson was like not good like if you go back and the Tom Wilson overtime goal, like there were some stinkers that he let in in that series, but the Leafs were right there. I know everyone blamed Martin Marincin for one of those, but it was a shot from the boards, which is what I always brought up yeah. trying to defend my boy Marty Marincin. Yeah, that, like, we don't need to talk about him. The Leafs were there, though. They were right there in that series, like more so than some of the others they've been in since. And uh, and that when it when it's that close of a gap and you upgrade that big from Alsner to Schmidt, like that's significant. That was like... One of those, I'm like, Washington is hurting themselves. They have no clue. All right, so Anthony, I'm going to pivot us here to a segment that you wanted to do. I think it's a really good one. So how about I'll let you introduce it here, the overreaction, underreaction segment that you really wanted to do in our first episode. 
Yeah, so uh, we wanted to bring up a few topics and know whether there is an overreaction or an underreaction happening to them right now. So they could be any number of things that are uh, going on in the comments section, going on on Twitter. Uh, hot takes galore are all over the place. So we figured we'd try to bring some levity to the situation, whatever it is, uh, with a topic. So the first one, and I'll ask you, Ian, uh, and then I'll give my take on it. Uh, whether we are underreacting or overreacting to William Nylander's defensive play. I think we overreact to everything William Nylander related in this market. I think William Nylander could sneeze and we'd probably overreact to it. I just, there's a lot of microanalysis whenever it comes to players in Toronto. I think William Nylander is what he was a couple of years ago, is what he is now in terms of he's an elite transition player with the puck on his stick. He picks it up in the defensive zone. He gets you an exit and an entry automatically. There aren't many players in the league who are as confident with the puck on his stick as he is. And I think he's way better in neutral zone defense than we tend to give him credit for. He's among the leaders in neutral zone takeaways per 60 every year. But you're going to bring up some defensive issues that I can understand uh, why people get frustrated with him for. So I'll just let you, you go on your rant here. You probably think we're underreacting to it. I do think we're underreacting. And I'll say why, because this should honestly be the bottom line. And I really hope I can articulate this in a way that at least it's understandable. But the bottom line is the Leafs don't give Nylander a ton of ice time. He's almost always playing under the 17-minute mark. The only reason he hit over that the last game is because he started in overtime. I'm not even going to discuss that. And the reason that he doesn't play as much as his talent suggests as he should is because they don't trust him defensively. You might not like if I point something out about him, but the Leafs don't trust him defensively. They often look to shelter him. They've been looking to start that line in the offensive zone as much as they can. And, you know, to some degree, like, it is a little bit of an indictment on his play. And that's fine. Like, he's going to score. He's a good player. Like, you can't argue otherwise. But... For $7 million, it'd be a little bit nicer if they could trust him in some defensive situations. They never let him touch the ice in the final two minutes of a one-goal lead they're protecting. And you can see that on those graphs that I like to pull up on uh, kind of player deployment and high-leverage situations offensively and defensively. Yeah. High-leverage situations offensively, they're definitely using him As because he's an elite offensive yeah. player. He has a great shot. He's an elite transition player as well. Defense is one of those things where... How are we measuring it? Because if you're looking at shots against and scoring chances against, William Nylander shows up well in those metrics because his team tends to have the puck when he's on the ice. What you're referring to, I think, are specific examples maybe on back checks. We look at the Leon Dreisaitl example. What are you specifically referring to? Because the coaches clearly see it too if they're not playing him late in a game where they're holding a one-goal lead. So what is it that he's doing wrong? So a really good example would came up when uh, Johnny Goudreau scored against the Leafs at even strength. And there was a puck that bounced to the top of the circle and Nylander and Monaghan raced for it. And it was like, it was a quick play, but Nylander tried to one hand the puck by Sean Monaghan. Who's a, he's a good player. I'm not going to say he's a leader or anything, but he's a legitimately good player. Top six NHL forward. Yeah. Right. Like he's solid. And that's not really the kind of guy that you're like, am I going to one handed skate and try to poke the puck around this guy for a three on two the other way like I get what he's trying to do of course it didn't work Monaghan 
stopped the puck, took a shot on net, and Goudreau put the rebound in. And that kind of started that Calgary comeback after that really good first period the Leafs had, probably their best period of the season so far. And, like, there's just all sorts of bad habits there. Like, doesn't put his body on the play, doesn't uh, use two hands on his stick, he doesn't stop on the puck. I had pointed out the dry sidle thing, like, a very simple example. Like, it's not even a subjective opinion at this point, just objective. Like, dry sidle skating down the wing, you're missing Matthews, you're like, I'm going to start one of my other big guys for once, because Matthews isn't in. And he doesn't put his body on him, and he goes by. Is Nylander ever going to be a player who puts his body on a guy just based on his play style, based on everything we've seen over the last few years? I don't think we can expect him to be a you know a physical presence, despite the fact that I think he's a lot stronger than people realize. I think you look so, at- too. I think he needs to have a bit more of a sense of occasion. I don't ever expect him to put his body on guys, but in those kind of situations, like, you have to identify. Like, you have to know when you get on the ice. You're like, that's Sean Monaghan with Johnny Gaudreau. Like, I need to be sure. That's, you know, Leon Dreisaitl. Like, there's certain players where you have to kind of sit there and be like, like, those are the other team's really good players. Like, I can't I can't be as soft on them as I would the other players. But, like, I know that he's going to get, like, I know that he, like, his high up on the team in takeovers and all that. Like, none of that's lost on me. But he's often doing it praying against third lines. And the Leafs know it. So they shelter him. I would just like to see a little bit more out of him because I'd like him to be playing like 18 minutes a night. And I'm sure the Leafs would too, but they don't trust him. I just want to let you know that he leads uh, Toronto forwards in shot share. Five on five. The Leafs have the puck when he's on the ice. He's getting it into the offensive zone. Where does he rank on the team in offensive zone starts? We know that offensive zone starts don't impact your five-on-five results to the degree that people think they do. People think that you get a few offensive zone starts and you should be dominating every single metric. That's not how it works. No, of course not. But it does help play it. Like, his like his shifts are always tilted. It does. But you start something like 60% of your, your shifts on the fly. So, I mean, most players are, are starting their shifts on the fly. Yeah. I don't know. I always get frustrated when people bring up zone starts as a reason to, oh, well, you know, he starts a few of his shifts in the defensive zone, so it makes sense that he's getting completely killed in the shot and scoring chance department. That's that's usually just a way of explaining away bad results. I'm never a fan of there's, that. There's, like, a mushy middle and area where, like, you could take it or leave it the other way, but then there's in a, there's a bit more of a level where it's, like, if you're starting a ton, like, it is going to impact your numbers, and he's leaning towards... The other side, like if you're starting a ton in the offensive zone, like he's kind of shading to that side of things, like it is going to impact his numbers. And if he's playing against weaker players, which he generally is, like he should be running them over. And then I guess the bigger problem would be you'd have a problem with the coaching staff because they obviously don't trust him either. I think Anthony is overreacting to William (laughs) Nylander's defense. I think collectively... We are underreacting to the absence of Rasmus Sandin in a Leafs uniform over the first 10 games of the season. Uh, He's 20 years old now. When was the last time he played an NHL game? It feels like it was a long time ago. I'm not sure if it was 12 months ago, but I think it was at least 10 months ago. These are important developmental years for prospects. Age 18, 19, 20, you get exponentially better year by year. And Rasmus Sandin's been missing out on that time, largely due to injury. But the first 10 games of the season, he hasn't played yet. If he's not going to play in the NHL, 
he should be in Sweden or somewhere where he feels comfortable playing in a professional league. That's where I'd like to see him. But clearly they think, okay, he's one of our depth defensemen. We're going to have some injuries, and we're going to try to get him into a game. I'm really worried at what this does to his development. We, I was at a analytics conference a few years ago, and there was talk about how if you get injured at an important developmental time of your career, do you ever get that developmental time back? Morgan Riley. It's a philosophical question. Morgan Riley. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Something to think about. Timothy Lilligren never developed that skating strike, got injured at an important time of development for him. Rasmus Sandin's 20 now. This is a really important year for him as an NHL prospect. I'd argue he's Toronto's most important prospect. As much as I like Nicholas Robertson, I don't think he has the upside that Sandin does. I think Sandin, if his cards are played right defensively, I really like his upside as a passer, his ability to think the game and make players around him better. I wouldn't be shocked if he became a top-pairing defenseman at some point in his career, certainly top four. He's not getting any ice time right now. I think that's a problem, and I'd like to see him get into the lineup at some point in one of these next couple games. I, I do lean towards underreaction. I'm just going to adjust this tripod on the mic. Um, I do lean towards underreaction, but I will say this. like, Is like one game out of ten like really going to make like a huge difference? Like He needs to be playing steady, and that's the problem. And ideally, it would be, it'd be in the AHL considering the group. And like they can't really offer it either way. Like If he plays one out of 10 I'm not really sure it makes like a true difference in his life if anything it might like mess with his mind a little bit more all the top prospects I'm watching right now whether it's in Finland or Russia or Sweden they're getting minutes at a professional level in a strong league and the guys that are producing well you're thinking okay this is a good strong developmental year for that player Rasmus Sandin is getting the Justin Hall treatment right now. oh I agree he should be playing like let's not get that wrong like he should a thousand but like Probably in Europe is my yeah, point. Like, that might, I mean, realistically. Like, this is a waste of his time. Like, he's going to practice with these guys. And, like, honestly, like, I don't like, I don't think practice is what people think it is with, with the NHL. Like, it's really not. Like, the morning skates are quick. Like, you know, if guys have games to focus on, like, they're focusing on the game. Like, you're not getting out of practice what you think you are. You might write this second because the Leafs have, like, a five-day layoff or whatever it is. But... And, like, when they're playing as much as they are with that tight of a schedule, like, practice isn't benefiting you, really. Not really to what people think it is. It's not like, oh, you're practicing with Austin Matthews and he's trying against you all the time. Would you rather have Miko Lettinen in the lineup or Rasmus Sandin in soft bottom pair of minutes in PP2 usage? I think it's a bit of a loaded question, right? Because they won the recruiting on Lettinen. So part of it, I'm sure they feel obligated that they have to get this guy in the lineup a little bit and give him a look. Like, it's just a bad look. Otherwise, the next big name isn't going to come. It's just a bad look if they sign him and, like, and then they're just like, yeah, you know what? We're like, we're going to put this other kid in. And you can just, like, sit in the press box all season. Like, it was like kind of like, what's the point? Um, but, like, yeah, like, that stuff aside, I would rather see Sandine because, obviously, he has a higher ceiling. Although I do like Lettinen for what he is. Like, I think he could play in the league. I think he could quarterback a power play. I think he has a good shot. I think the hard part is that he's just much worse at 5-on-5 five five than Travis Dermott, and yeah. I'm not sure if it's worth the power play upgrade you're getting. No, it's not. I just I think that he could somewhat play in the league. I think he could be a contributor somewhere. I'm not sure if it's on the Leafs, though. I saw someone call him Miko uh, Andre Bergeron, you know, like <laughs> yeah, the number yeah. seven defenseman power play expert, and I'm thinking, you know what, and the Leafs do their 11 forward 7-D. I don't hate Miko Lettinen in offensive zone starts and power play usage and when you're trailing. I thought offensive zone starts don't matter. 
Okay, I'm not saying that they don't matter. I like the idea of using a player in offensive situations versus defensive situations. Even though, at the end of the day, your results are kind of who you are. The results say a lot about what a guy is. If you're constantly getting destroyed in shots and chances year after year, game after game, that's not your usage's fault. I think it's your fault, and that falls on you. And that's the Morgan Riley argument that after so many years, we've been blaming it on his partners. We've been blaming it on the context. But at some point... If you're consistently on the ice and your results aren't positive, I think it says more about you than anything. And my last uh, overreaction, underreaction here of, of this segment is, uh, is Muzzin flipping the puck at Kachuk. Overreaction <laughs> or underreaction? I mean, they gave him an A shortly afterwards. So I argued they should have given him a C for a few games. <laughs> I might have walked in and just said, Muzz, like, you have it. Like, that's a leader. Uh. It's funny. When I'm evaluating hockey, I usually don't get too into the weeds when it comes to the shenanigans, when it comes to the Brad Marchand, Matthew Kachuk kind of stuff. There's not going to be any Brad Marchand this year, so that's that's a nice change of pace, but a lot more Matthew Kachuk. I like the fact that Muzzin actually tried to get under someone's skin. There. I know that it was just a spur-of-the-moment thing. The puck landed on his stick at the very end of the game. Matthew Kachuk happened to be there. But with this Leafs team, you see it with the acquisition of a Wayne Simmons, of a Zach Bogosian. Last year, Kyle Clifford, I thought was a perfect example of someone who is that old school type that you want to bring that element, but also had positive 5-on-5 five five results. Wayne Simmons is giving you positive power play results. The 5-on-5 five five results haven't been there yet, but we'll see where that goes. I understand wanting to have an element of a bit of pushback, a bit of competitive pushback, whether it's after the whistle or at the, at the end of games when a Matthew Kachuk's trying to get in your head, when a Matthew Kachuk's running around throwing elbows in a playoff series, where's the pushback going to be? I like that we got to see it from Jake Muzzin. At the same time, I think we've talked about it enough, so I'm, I'm going to say a bit of an overreaction, even though I loved it in the moment and still love it to this day. I'm going to say a little bit of an underreaction. One, like... They could have put the C on his chest for the whole season, and I would have been happy on that. No one would have blinked an eye. <laughs> I don't think anyone would have fought it. But the uh, but the other thing is, uh, I would have just liked to have seen someone, like, if they were really upset about what happened with Campbell, and I think that they were upset, as much as they played it off um, through the media, as they should have, obviously you could tell it was on their minds. It was something that they were thinking of and it, it bothered them and he's out for a few weeks. They might have to start Michael Hutchinson at some point this month. They should start Michael Hutchinson at least once just to see. I don't give anyways, uh, I'm not going to get into that part yet. No, it's all right. Backup goaltending in Toronto. It's not like we freaked out about this before. But my my point on it is if you were watching like that game up until that moment, you wouldn't have known that it bothered them. Like I didn't see really I don't really remember anybody going out of their way to like finish their check on Kachuk or talk to him. And you could kind of say like, just, well, just like play the game and like, don't let it bother you. But like, if it bothered you and you're sitting on it, why doesn't someone just go out? Like Myers ran Armia and then Edmondson was just like, he went over to him at, in warmups and they fought and they got over with. I'm not even saying someone has to fight Kachuk, but like if it bothered you that he hurt your teammate, like, you could have made it known a little bit better than just like a very soft little flick at the very end, as funny as it was. I like the fact that it, it, it kind of turned him insane temporarily. And which, just... which was the best part, right? Like he totally filled his diaper on it. He totally like went around and um, embarrassed himself. Like that was all great. But just like, why didn't anyone hit him throughout the game? Like, why didn't like 
like why didn't anyone say anything to him like where, like where was it you played for 60 minutes so um underreaction on to Muzzin for doing it because that was hilarious but I thought underreaction a little bit on the the team's end as well like if you were like this guy's gonna hurt your goalie um in retaliation someone will flick the puck at him very softly the next game at the buzzer Hey, when you say it like that, it doesn't have the same gravitas in the moment. It was actually an incredible thing. But, again, I don't want to talk too much about this kind of stuff because at the <laughs> end of the day, how much does it really matter? I don't know. Maybe it matters more than I let on, and that's why the Leafs need to acquire these uh, Matt Martin types that they've been clearly trying to address that little need over the last few years. Maybe they acquire someone, someone like that at the deadline who maybe fills a bit of a physical need but also a middle six forward need, similar to the Charlie Coyle trade that Boston made uh, the other year. That was something that I'm thinking, okay, the Leafs could really use a forward like that. I could see that being something where they add to the mix, whether it's at the deadline. I know they were saying, hey, we might be looking to make a trade now. But... I think it's time to wrap things up. We're 40 minutes into this podcast. It was a good time. Looking forward to the next three games against Vancouver, who's been a weirdly disastrous team. I know you had a segment, though. I have a segment. We're going to save it for next week, but I'll, I'll plug it here. Stat of the week. Shocker that I wanted to come up with the stat of the week, knowing my brand. But we'll save that for next week. So, uh, you know, just be ready for it. I'm excited. What are you looking forward to over these next three games against Vancouver? Because I know it's not exactly a measuring stick game. I know that they've really struggled. No, Elias Pettersson isn't really producing. And when he's on the ice, the team's shooting percentage is something insane. So that's going to regress. And he's not going to score as much as he's scoring right now at even strength. And he's not even scoring that much. So there are problems in Vancouver right now. But if you're a Leafs fan going into these next few games, what are you going to be looking at closely? I would really like to see them kind of settle on their lineup a little bit. They've been jumbling the forwards around, which is completely understandable. And they need to get guys in and see what works and what doesn't. And Keith referenced that last week. But they have a really big back-to-back -back coming up with the Habs. I talked a little bit about what I why I think first place is important. Uh, so they have three games here where hopefully they can kind of decide a little bit better on who like their bottom sixes and like get into a little bit of a, of a groove. We kind of talked about bear and yeah, that's what, that's one story in and of itself. But like, is Joey Anderson a good checker is Travis Boyd a solution? Like I would really like to see them kind of s settle a little bit more on a lineup going into two really big games against the Habs, as opposed to a bunch of question marks back down in the bottom six while Wayne Simmons plays in the top six against the Habs who look really, really good right now. Can I give you a super quick stat on Barabanov? What do you think his shot share is at 5-on-5? Five five, the percent of shots that his team gets when he's on the ice at 5-on-5. Five five. Is it over or under 40%? It is 34%. Holy cow. The, the other team is getting 66% of the shots when Barabanov. He's just getting completely filled in. I get that it's in six minutes a night. This is six games, 36-minute sample. We're not looking at much, but... Man, it might be try to it might be time to try something else on that fourth line. If you're playing six minutes a night and you're getting caved in like that, like why even put the equipment on? And those are soft minutes too. You're not facing the other team's best players. That's a problem. Uh, I know this is a problem in previous years where the Leafs had a fourth line that was just getting absolutely destroyed. And it, it made me write that Frederick Gauthier article where early in the season the Frederick Gauthier fourth line was actually not terrible. And then I got lit up by uh, Jeff O'Neill because he had zero points on the season. And so was the uh, the birth of Ian Graff. And with that, I think we'll, we'll bid you adieu. 
this was a, a fun inaugural podcast. It feels good to be talking about the Leafs again. And uh, I guess we'll be back at some point next week. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, you can subscribe to the uh, Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. Uh, rate, and, rate, review, and subscribe, whatever the people are saying on social media these days. Smash that like button. I don't know if we're that kind of channel right now. I don't know if we're ready for that. No. <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not cool. We're not, <laughs> we're not hip. We're not down with the youths. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Looking forward to next week's episode where we'll talk about the series that they've been having with the Vancouver Canucks. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.